Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Good morning. It is Sunday, April the 3rd, day 39 of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ali Velshi, live in Lviv. For several days now and for several reasons, we've been hearing that we are approaching a turning point in this war, and now it seems we are there. I must warn you, this morning's show, the topics, the images, the descriptions of what is happening on the ground here in Ukraine, they're graphic, they're disturbing, and they are difficult to watch. This is not going to be typical Sunday morning TV fair. Some of the worst images we've seen so far from Vladimir Putin's brutal war of choice are coming to light today. Some of the worst images you may ever see on television, but we must watch, we must bear witness because it's the truth to which we cannot and must not shield our eyes. So with that warning, let's get to it. Ukrainian forces say they have fully liberated areas and towns around Kyiv. However, any celebration about that liberation is more than overshadowed by what has been discovered in the wake of the Russian retreat. Because while Ukrainian flags may fly once again in these towns, they are flying over the body of dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of dead Ukrainian civilians, killed, according to Ukrainian officials, and witnessed by Russian troops for nothing other than being Ukrainian. In Buzha, a previously thriving suburb, a commuter town located just 20 miles from the center of Kyiv, the devastation is immense, as is the sheer brutality and sheer inhumanity. The town was without electricity, gas, food, and other resources and supplies for weeks while under Russian occupation. And according to officials on the ground reports and the images that you are about to see, which again are deeply disturbing, Civilians appear to have been massacred, with dead bodies dressed in civilian clothing lining the streets. This video, posted by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, shows trucks literally swerving to avoid the bodies of what appear to be dead civilians. One body still seen holding onto a bicycle. Buja's mayor says that at least 20 people were shot in the back of the head, execution style. Several have their hands tied in cloth behind their back, something which is visible in many of these images. As a senior advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky states on Twitter, quote, the bodies of people with tied hands who were shot dead by Russian soldiers lie in the streets. These people were not in the military. They had no weapons. They posed no threat. Buja's mayor, its remaining residents and other officials report that men, women and children are among the dead and they were killed trying to escape simply for being there in indiscriminate killings by Russians when they occupied the town as they retreated. The mayor also says that several hundred people are buried in mass graves in the suburban formerly peaceful town. This video appears to show one such mass grave. However, the removal of all the civilian bodies and also the dead Russian soldiers left behind by retreating troops is hampered by reports and fears that Russia may have rigged the dead bodies with explosives. 
This video shows the surreal process that Ukrainians are forced to use in order to remove many of the dead from their streets, tying rope and cord to bodies with stiff and rigor mortis dragging them away, all because they're fearful of getting too close in case the Russians rigged the bodies to explode when they're moved. Russian forces are also said to have placed landmines during their retreat, including around civilian homes. And remember, Buzha is just one area. Ukrainian officials say this is the situation in other towns around Kyiv and around the country as well. We've been hearing reports of it for weeks. We've seen some glimpses of the horror and the brutality, notably in Mariupol, but not with the same horrific clarity and detail and imagery that we are seeing now. It is believed that the retreating, retreating Russian troops are regrouping and repositioning, but we know without any doubt that they are committing inhumane, barbaric atrocities. You're looking at some of the evidence of that right now. There have been so many reported of situations similar to Buzha throughout Ukraine that it appears that this part of Russia's strategy and playbook for what the Kremlin perversely calls a special military operation, slaughter and massacre is what it is. These atrocities are at a level that no longer can be denied or ignored. Killing innocent, peaceful people just for being who they are. That is the key ingredient of genocide. The images we are seeing today from Ukraine are evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity on a massive scale. The world can no longer close its eyes to what we're seeing. The war has changed. Russia has escalated. It has to end. There is no more proof that is needed. We have a moral and a human obligation to stop this. Russia has breached every rule for which the United Nations was created, yet it continues to enjoy a seat on that body. Will NATO offer a suitable response, or will we see and talk about new civilian massacres for several weeks or months or even longer? If these horrific images do not spur greater action, then the phrase never again has no meaning. And for thousands of dead Ukrainian civilians, never again is already here. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Gabe Gutierrez. He is here in Lviv. Gabe, Russians have reportedly retreated from those areas around Kyiv, something that was being celebrated yesterday. But what have we learned overnight about the towns that they previously controlled? Ali, as you just laid out, the images are just excruciating to watch. And from hearing local witnesses speaking to reporters there, they're saying that some of these residents were shot indiscriminately. You saw in some of that video, at least a few of those residents were on bicycles. Some of the men had their hands tied behind their back. It is just in incredible to see and disturbing on every level, as you said, as a simple atrocity. But as you said, now with Russian forces pulling out, we're starting to get a clearer picture of that. They apparently have pulled out of the areas, not just in Busha, but also in and around Kyiv. Russian, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, though, as you alluded to, says that much of that territory is now mine, that several home, that homes are mine, that even dead bodies are mined as well. And so now it's that excruciating process that Ukrainian forces are having to go through and trying to determine how it's safe to pass. Also, humanitarian aid organizations are trying to get to that area to help those people that were trapped there for weeks with no food, water, or electricity. But, Ali, as the Russian forces are pulling out the, of the northern part of the country, the fighting is also intensifying towards the east and to the south. I also want to mention something that happened just this morning in the southern port city of Odessa. Some new 
airstrikes there, although, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, what was targeted there was an oil refinery and several fuel depots that were destroyed. That seems to be a precision strike unlike what you're describing here in Busha, which was civilians apparently targeted by the Russian forces, as you said, Ali, appears to take this war to just another level, despite all that we had been hearing from Mariupol, which, by the way, buses are, humanitarian buses are trying their best to evacuate hundreds of those refugees by the hour. But what we're seeing in and around Kyiv as those Russian forces pull out, it's just, just so disturbing, Ali. Gabe Gutierrez, we will be speaking through the course of the next few hours. Uh, please uh, stay in very close touch with us. Gabe Gutierrez is here live with me in Ukraine, keeping an eye on these developments this morning. Joining me now is Andrei Kozirev. He served as in uh, multiple positions in the Soviet government. He was Russia's first foreign minister following the fall of the Soviet Union. He was known as a reformer and was highly instrumental in the immediate post-Soviet Russia. He even served as Russia's representative during the Oslo Accord. He's the author of the book, The Firebird, The Elusive Fate of Russian Democracy, and he's been a major outspoken critic of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Kozarev, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I, I have to ask you now, you've been very active and very vocal about uh, what you think needs to be done, but what we are witnessing this morning does seem to be a change. It does seem to be an escalation, and it should be something that influences NATO and the United States about perhaps a shift in strategy about how to deal with Russia. I hope so. Uh, it's another wake-up call for the West to understand that in Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainians are fighting for the freedom. Uh, and uh, it requires brave to be free. You remember? Brave to be free. So NATO should put out those fears of so-called nuclear uh, weapons and other things. That's the nuclear weapon they are using. They are bombing uh, cities, and they will continue to do that in, in the south of Ukraine. But only brave could stop it. Otherwise, you will see it in other places, over the NATO borders, eastern borders, to, to start with, actually. But they already committed those crimes also in Syria, far from Russia. So all those explanations do not fly, and NATO should pull up, America should leave to really uh, stay against this barbarity and understand who Mr. Putin is. Uh, Mr. Kozirev, I'll be speaking very shortly to Tomas Ilves, uh, who was the, the former president of, of Estonia. Uh, obviously, these are former Soviet republics that became NATO countries. And while they are fearful of Russian expansion, they are guaranteed of, of a mutual defense with NATO. That is something that Ukraine does not have. It is something that Ukraine has asked for, and it is not being granted to them. They have asked for a no-fly zone. And there is great concern in the West, including amongst our, our viewers, that if NATO does look at this and step up its protection, of Ukraine, including with things like no-fly zones or direct military invention, it will trigger a nuclear war, something that Vladimir Putin has alluded to uh, several times. How do we square this? How do we say that we cannot watch this imagery of these, uh, these atrocities, these war crimes, this what is starting to look like a genocide, because we cannot risk nuclear war? 
Ali, I believe that the situation is reversed, uh, absolutely opposite to this logic that you should not provoke or you should not stand against Putin because he, he might uh, resort to uh, mini nukes or something like that. It's opposite. He learns, he, he like a, an animal, you know, a predatory animal. He smells the blood. So he smelt it in Syria. He's, uh, he, he smelt it in uh, Ukraine eight years ago when they um, entered uh, the, the Crimea and even uh, annexed the Crimea uh, brazenly. But don't... Uh, don't confuse brazenness with bravery. They are brazen as long as they can get away with it. But nuclear deterrence either works or not. The nuclear deterrence is very simple. I remember it from my time in the Soviet foreign ministry. In the Soviet foreign ministry, we knew that nuclear threshold cannot be even even closed, because uh, if you press the button, the nuclear button, whatever, small or big, you get it back immediately, immediately. The same thing you get back to you immediately. And that's what have, um, that's what kept the Soviet Union from crossing the lines, you know? Uh, and that's what kept peace for 70 years up to now. And if they get away with Ukraine, if they destroy and subdue the Ukraine, next will be the Baltic states, which you mentioned, because those were also members of the Soviet Union. And those people in Moscow today, they are fighting the same Cold War, but they are brazen enough to use hot war in Europe. And if they don't believe in deterrence in Ukraine, why would they believe in uh, Baltic states? And Ukraine is big country and large country territorially, and that takes more than a month, and they still don't have victory. But those countries, Baltic states, they are small countries. They could be overrun by tanks probably in in few hours because it's it's very small look at the map and they will not stop from that because in ukraine they either learn that nato is strong and nato is resolved and uh, not fearful the land of the brave and the land of the free that's what nato should be like america and it should be clear to them that they don't have free lunch in uh, Ukraine and they will not then go to uh, the NATO territory. If they have the free lunch in Ukraine, they will next be in Baltic states or uh, perhaps in Poland. Mr. Korzirov, a very few people know this as intimately and as well as you do, and we appreciate you helping us put these graphic images and these atrocities into context for us. Andrei Kozirev is the former foreign minister of Russia. He's the author of The Fireberg, The Elusive Fate of Russian Democracy.
We're going to take a break. After this, I will continue the conversation with the former president of Estonia, a country which knows all too well the seriousness of the threat posed by Russia. What NATO and the world must do now to respond to Russia's inhumanity is next on Velshi, live from Lviv. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Joining me now is Tumas Ilvas. He is the former president of the Republic of Estonia, the former Estonian ambassador to the United States and Canada, the former Ukrainian minister for uh, the former Estonian minister for foreign affairs. His country knows all too well the horrors that come from being occupied by its neighbor to the east. Uh, president Ilvas, we appreciate you uh, being with us. Thank you for your time this morning. You heard the conversation I just had with Mr. Kozirev. Uh, these fears that your states, the Baltic states, have about Russian expansionism are coming true in Ukraine. I, I, I want to first get your thoughts about the imagery that we are seeing, the new imagery from the areas around uh, Kiev about the atrocities and the war crimes and the dead civilians whose bodies we have been watching on TV this morning. Well, I should say my Twitter timeline is filled with uh, Estonians in their 20s, 30s and 40s talking about how their grandfather or great-grandfather met the same fate. Uh, we had many, many cases of civilians who were <clears throat> tied up and shot uh, in, uh, the ba in basements of public buildings. Uh, this brings back uh, and makes real very painful memories uh, and makes Estonians realize that these were not simply stories that we were told, but this is exactly what happened to our forefathers 70, 80 years ago, uh, which uh, I guess uh, strengthens our resolve and our commitment to, to NATO, because that is really the only way we will avoid the horrendous fate that uh, are, we see in these clips from yesterday. Uh, the, the the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they made decisions early on at the end of the Soviet Union uh, as quickly as they could to become NATO members. That is not a choice that Ukrainians made. And at this point, the, the West is very concerned. Citizens of the West are very concerned that anything that looks like an answer to what uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky is asking for, including no-fly zones or greater milita military assistance or perhaps direct military involvement by NATO could trigger that nuclear war. That is the concern on everyone's mind right now. Russia is escalating. Russia is committing war crimes. And we don't know what the answer to that is right now. What is it? Well, there's a very fundamental issue here, which is that uh, both uh, the Soviet Union and up till now, Russia and the West have always uh, considered uh, nuclear arms a deterrent. That is that if you attack us, uh, we will get you back. Simple. 
This is the first time that anyone has uh, has threatened to use nuclear weapons for conquest. This is the fundamental issue which too few people uh, in NATO have actually realized or made clear to themselves. There is one thing to say that we're going to use nuclear weapons to defend ourselves if you attack us. The other one, and for which too many, alas, have fallen, is that we are going to use nuclear weapons to conquer new territory. And that is a completely different ballgame. It also leads me to doubt very much whether this would stand up to anything. It's hardly an existential question for Russia to be stopped from invading another country. And so I think we need to really be much more serious than we are. And these kind of excuses, oh, we can't defend the Ukrainians because it'll start a nuclear war, really already is acceding to Russian blackmail who a country that is use, threatening to use nuclear weapons to conquer other countries. And that will not stop anywhere because once they've succeeded there, they will go on and say, we will use nuclear weapons when we attack some other country. You have to say, no, we will put a stop to this now. You know uh, the American audience well. You know Canadians. You know what these fears are. So very plainly, and I, I think I know what you're saying, but very plainly, we know that the Ukrainian military has been able to very heroically fight off one of the largest armies in the world. But we also know that Russia hasn't thrown everything that it's got at this fight. We also know that NATO, in a conventional uh, military uh, engagement, would entirely overpower Russia in this fight in Ukraine. So what do you say to people? who say any escalation risks NATO lives, American lives, Canadian lives, and risks uh, nuclear war. What is the actual response that you would have to someone who would say that this morning? If you don't respond now, you will be responding when they attack NATO, and then you have no choice but to respond. So by not responding to, uh, to Russia's aggression right now, you are merely telling him it's okay. You are telling him, yes, this works. And this that's, that's, I mean, we have to realize that's what we are telling Vladimir Putin is that go ahead. We will not do anything. Succeed. Please go ahead. This is why I mean, there are, first of all, there are plenty of things we can do right now. With, but long before we, we enter Ukraine as NATO, which uh, is probably unlikely anyway, but Certainly. I mean, the continued refusal of Germany to cut off gas. I mean, what does never again mean anymore these days if you are saying, no, 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 we really don't want to pay more for gas. Uh, and so really, actually, the Vergangenheitsbewältigung, the reckoning of our past that they have been saying they've been dealing with for 80 years is really just so much rhetoric. It really is just, I mean, the point is, if you're not willing to stand up for the most basic humanitarian issues of civilians, citizens being killed merely for being ethnic Ukrainians, then then you are not, you don't have any political capital left. You're really trading gas for human lives. That's the first thing. Second thing, there is no excuse for the, this continued n- nervous Nelly anxiety about giving used MIGs that plenty of countries in the among the Eastern NATO members have 
to the Ukrainians when we have when where there's an air war going on. They have pilots can fly these airplanes. They should be given the the tools to fight back. This does not mean going in and sending NATO troops into into Ukraine. It does mean giving giving the Ukrainians the tools they absolutely need to fight back, not helmets. They need anti-aircraft missiles. They need anti-ship missiles to defend Odessa. There, there, there is so much that they need and they are not getting it yet. I, I mean, I'm just uh, flabbergasted by this. President uh, Tumas Ilvis, you know of what you speak, and we appreciate your important voice uh, in this critical time. Tumas Ilvis is the former president of the Republic of Estonia. Smoke is rising from the Ukrainian port city of Odessa this morning. It marks the first major Russian attack on the key territory. We've got a live report from Odessa coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. As we have been reporting, Russian troops are pulling back from territory surrounding Kyiv, exposing scenes of mass devastation, including streets and sidewalks that are littered with dead bodies dressed in civilian clothes. Now it seems that Russia's troops are realigning and shifting focus to regions in Ukraine's east and south. And this morning, there were explosions and black plumes of smoke throughout the key coastal city of Odessa. That marks Russia's first major strike on the important Black Sea port. The city council deputy says a missile was fired at a critical infrastructure facility. Russia claims it destroyed an oil refinery and three fuel storage facilities. NBC News has not yet been able to confirm that a fuel depot was a target. Joining us this morning on the ground from Odessa is Washington Post foreign correspondent Isabel Kershudian. Uh, Isabel, uh, it has been a, a, a difficult night in Odessa. It has been something that uh, the residents of Odessa have been expecting and planning for for weeks. This is an important target for the Russians. Tell us what's happened. Yeah, around 6 a.m., you know, my uh, window at my hotel room was open and I thought I heard like a whooshing sound that um, I even thought to myself, was that an airplane? Um, which is obviously a sound you do not want to hear anywhere in Ukraine, you know, these days. Um, and then uh, you kind of heard an explosion after that. And then several more, and they were kind of increasingly loud. Um, and that's, I think it took everyone here by surprise because, um, you know, really for the duration of this war, Odessa has felt like one of the safest cities in Ukraine, uh, which I don't think anyone was expecting. You know, as you said, it, it is a major target because of how important, you know, this port is. It's one of the largest Black Sea ports. Um, I think it has a huge bullseye on it uh, where the Russians are concerned. Uh, but because, you know, Ukraine's forces have made a pretty impressive stand in Mykolaiv, about 70 miles to the east, uh, Russia just hasn't had the ground forces to get here. Um, so it's kind of left this city unscathed, but, you know, kind of nowhere safe in Ukraine when it comes to air attacks. And uh, that's what we saw today is there were just kind of strikes on the city through missiles. 
And, and I want to just ask uh, my director, John, to put that picture up again of the map to just show people where Odessa is. Because troops are, are struggling to get there, Russian troops are struggling to get there from Mykolaiv, uh, there are ways that the Russians can hit Odessa. I think your tweet or your reporting indicated that these were airstrikes, but there are also uh, ships off the, the coast of Odessa that can launch missiles into that city. Yeah, there have been, um, you know, ships on the Black Sea here for, you know, weeks uh, that are just kind of hovering. And those ships will send, you know, missiles to other parts of Ukraine as well. Um, you know, the strike on the regional administration building in Mykolaiv that's killed, you know, more than 30 people, uh, those were missiles that came from, you know, the Black Sea fleet. But, um you know, I think people were preparing for an amphibious landing on Odessa for, you know, kind of shelling to come from those ships. That has not happened yet. And it is, you know, in part because any amphibious landing would you know, pretty much fail pretty fast when there's no ground support uh, and the forces are held up in Mykolaiv. Uh, Isabel, thank you for your important reporting. Isabel Kershudian is a Washington Post foreign correspondent joining us live this morning from Odessa. All right. Talks between Russian and Ukrainian negotiators have been ongoing, and there is a curious neutral party seated at the table acting as a go-between trying to broker peace. Coming up next, I'm going to tell you about the Russian oligarch who is currently trusted by both Russia and Ukraine. In the 1980s, a young Russian Jew dropped out of college and joined the Red Army. He was orphaned at a young age. He spent his childhood in a small town on the Volga River in northern Russia. After serving time in the army, the young man picked up odd jobs here and there. He was a mechanic. He was a perfume, doll, cigarette, and rubber duck salesman. Today, that man is one of the richest people in the world and among the top 10 wealthiest billionaires in Russia. At 55 years old, Roman Abramovich has a net worth of about $8.2 billion, having peaked at $23.5 billion in 2008, according to Forbes. If you're a soccer fan, you probably know Abramovich as the longtime owner of the English Premier League's Chelsea Football Club. He also owns stakes in the steel giant Evraz and metals firm Norilska Nickel. He's the owner of the world's second largest yacht, the 533-foot Eclipse, which is estimated to be worth about $700 million. Abramovich amassed his fortune during an era that established the first generation of Russian oligarchs. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, the government began to lose its grip on the economy. State-owned enterprises went up for sale, and people were able to buy everything from small businesses to large oil firms and mines for dirt cheap. Abramovich and a business partner reportedly persuaded the Russian government to sell them a state-run oil company called Sibneft for $200 million. Ten years later, they sold the company back to the Russian government for $13 billion. Now, throughout his long business career, Abramovich managed to stay on the right side of the Kremlin, becoming a close ally to the former Russian president Boris Yeltsin in the 90s, and he later prospered in the era of Putin. Abramovich was elected the governor of Chukotka, a desolate northwestern Russian province in the year 2000, the same year that Putin took power. He remains part of Putin's elite inner circle, though he denies any financial ties to the Russian leader. He's largely flown under the radar of international politics until Russia invaded Ukraine in late February. 
The Wall Street Journal reports, quote, early on the morning that Moscow began its invasion of Ukraine, Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich was jolted from his sleep by a cell phone call from a Ukrainian movie producer with an urgent request. Was he willing to stop the fighting, end quote? Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, Ukrainian government officials were worried their Russian counterparts were not accurately relaying their messages to the man in charge, Putin. And they saw Abramovich as a direct line to Vladimir Putin. Now, over the last few months, Abramovich has gone from oligarch to wartime peace negotiator, which is a peculiar position for Abramovich to be in, given his longtime relationship with Vladimir Putin. But that might just be why Ukraine and Russia seem to think this could work. He was spotted at the peace talks in Istanbul, Turkey last week, though both sides say he's not an official member of their delegations, nor was he seated at the main negotiating table during the talks. In February, a spokesperson for Abramovich said, quote, I can confirm that Roman Abramovich was contacted by the Ukrainian side for support in achieving a peaceful resolution and that he has been trying to help ever since, end quote. According to the Wall Street Journal, for the last month, Abramovich has traveled across Eastern Europe, Russia, Israel and Turkey, acting as a back channel, passing Ukrainian requests directly to Mr. Putin. He's even reportedly helped to secure some safe corridors for people left behind in Ukrainian bombarded cities. Abramovich is among several other oligarchs who were sanctioned at the start of the crisis. Penalties from the UK and the EU forced him to reshuffle his assets and put his soccer team up for sale. But he has so far been spared from American sanctions. And that's reportedly because Ukrainian President Zelensky finds him so valuable to the peace process that he asked President Biden to hold off on sanctioning the billionaire. And the Biden administration agreed, again, according to The Wall Street Journal. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that Abramovich is dancing with the devil right now. Serving in this sort of role, being in Putin's head, can quickly backfire, especially if the talks fail. But you probably don't need to tell Roman Abramovich that. In early March, after the newly recruited billionaire envoy met with negotiators in Kyiv, the Wall Street Journal reports that Abramovich's skin started peeling off. He went temporarily blind. He and other members of the negotiating team allegedly suffered symptoms of suspected poisoning. The Russian government has denied any involvement, and NBC News has not independently confirmed that reporting. But Ukraine's foreign minister gave a nod to the reporting on Monday, saying about being at the negotiating table in Istanbul with the Russians, I advise anyone going for negotiations with the Russian Federation not to eat or drink anything and preferably avoid touching any surface, end quote. The valid question you might be asking is, what is Roman Abramovich's play here? What are his motives? Could be money, could be power, could be self-preservation. People close to the billionaire tell the Wall Street Journal he simply wants to help end the bloodshed and that he'll take some personal risks to do so. That remains to be seen. We're back live from Lviv, Ukraine. This morning, we've been reporting on the Russian withdrawal from the region around the Ukrainian capital city of Kyiv and showing you the gruesome images that have emerged in the wake of Russia's retreat. Widespread destruction, mass graves, the streets strewn with bodies of civilians that Ukrainians say were executed by Russian troops. I'm joined now by Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. He's the current Senate president pro tem, and he's the most senior member on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, 
Senator, uh, thank you for being with us this morning. You and I have talked for years, and I, I think I can I can speak personally to you. You were born during World War II, uh, a time during which we said and after which we said never again. And yet we see these things over and over again, and we are seeing them now. We are seeing what look like war crimes and, and possibly genocide uh, in Ukraine, and there are calls to do more now. What what do we do to stop this? I think one thing that's been very helpful uh, for the world to see what you've been covering this morning and these horrific shots that you've uh, shown and watching them almost in tears. You know, Donald Trump has said that uh, Putin is a genius. He's not. He's a war criminal. There's no question he's a war criminal. When you have innocent civilians just executed and then he's gone another step further He's put landmines and explosives in homes and vehicles, fields. Uh, We, under the Leahy law, we're not allowed to even export landmines from the United States. But these things are aimed not at military. They're aimed at civilians. It's a terrorist activity. Uh, He is a war criminal. And the Ukrainian people deserve an enormous amount of credit even though millions have had been displaced and are, are becoming refugees. Um, this has to end. And what Putin has done, he'll go down in history uh, alongside many other uh, war criminals. I want to ask you, uh, while we've got you, about the January 6th investigation uh, back home. We've learned that the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, exchanged text messages with the then White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, about trying to keep Donald Trump in office. Uh, How does that sit with you, uh, and what do you think uh, should be done? There are calls for Justice Thomas to heed calls to recuse himself from cases related to January 6th. There are some people calling for his impeachment. What do you think needs to be done? You have watched... Uh, the Supreme Court, you have been directly well, involved in Supreme Court uh, appointments. Well, I'm, I'm a member of the Supreme Court bar. I've argued cases before courts of appeal and others. Uh, obviously, he should recuse himself just for what it would say about the uh, uh, about the court in a case like this. The it more and more comes out of January 6th. It goes beyond being an Alice in Wonderland. It's uh, crazy that people are actually thinking that they could uh, set aside an election. I remember how horrified I was to see that they'd set up a gallows uh, on the Capitol grounds for Mike Pence. I mean, this, uh, this kind of thing, just this is not America. And she has shown that she fully um, bought into that. And I think for the integrity of the Supreme Court, her husband should recuse himself from any cases that involve January 6th. Uh, Senator, I, I want to. I need to talk about something good because there's been a lot of bad uh, right now. You uh, come to Vermont. There's an image of you with. Uh, 
Yeah, no, we, there's an image of you with uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, you you think that her uh, appointment, which now uh, looks like it could happen because we've heard from Susan Collins that she will support it. You think that that's some of the best of America. You you were actually fairly emotional in your response to uh, her her testimony. I was, you know, I've I've been here for every Supreme Court justice since uh, John Paul Stevens during President Ford's administration. Uh, I've not heard anybody who has given such thorough and brilliant uh, answers as she has. I met with her privately and then, of course, publicly in the hearings. Uh, This is a woman who has a remarkable story to tell. Uh, This is America. And I get furious when people like Ted Cruz say that by nominating her, it sends a terrible signal to qualified white men. What does he think has been on the court ever since the beginning of this country? They've been uh, the vast majority have been white men. It's good to have somebody who looks more like America. And she is that. Uh, She's there not uh, because of the color of her skin, but she's there because she is the most qualified person we could have. And I think that the attacks on her have been racist. They've been uh, misogynist. And it demeans the United States Senate. I I called out one of the senators by saying, I know he's aiming for social media, but let's start thinking about the United States Senate. We're not showing ourselves as conscience of the nation, the way she was treated. But I will proudly vote for her. She's earned it. Senator, it's always good to see you. Thank you this morning. Uh, Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont is the president pro tem of the United States Senate and a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. All right. After the break, I want to highlight the remarkable reporting of my colleagues on the ground here in Ukraine. Uh, it's not been easy, but it's been necessary. You're watching a special edition of Velshi live from Lviv. I'm back here in Lviv, Ukraine. This city is all the way on the western part of the country. It's closer to Poland, uh, which is a NATO ally, by the way, which is largely why it's one of the places to cover this war as a journalist. It's safer. But over the last six weeks, NBC News has had multiple correspondents deployed all across this war-torn country in order to bear witness. And they've seen a lot, from shelling and gruesome violence to refugees of all ages pouring across borders to devastation that will be seared in our minds for forever. This past week, I decided to gather my fellow NBC News colleagues who are here in Lviv, who've been reporting on this crisis each day to discuss the experience of covering this war and what drew them all to this assignment. Well, looking around, it is fairly normal here. So you can take a walk, you can go get coffee, you can get some fresh air to yourself, which I think for me, not that we have much time for that much else, um, helps a lot and helps coming in, coming out of stories, resets on a daily basis. And Lviv, you can do that. Other places, you can't. What do you do? It's exactly the same thing. You walk around, as you can see, it's an incredibly beautiful city. So it's nice to be able to walk around the city that hasn't pretty much stayed untouched in this war. You know, get a meal, have a coffee with your colleagues, uh, and then get back into your routine. I think the only reason that we can keep it normal is that we have, we're all here. We all know each other from home. But there's a team of producers here on the ground that live here and that this is their city, this is their country. 
um, we've all gotten to work with amazing Ukrainians who make this um, easy for us. And I don't know how they do it because on top of, of being journalists and great journalists, they've left their normal lives behind, you know, in order to make this comfortable for, for all of us. To and those, they're able to, to separate those people. that right. yeah. in a way that we don't have to, in a way that they have to then approach these people as their countrymen, as friends of theirs, as people they might know from home, from Kiev right. or wherever. And we actually are talking about these places on a map. We are talking about these places um, very kind of journalistically, and that's not the same for them. I am more inspired by the local journalists that are here. I just was speaking with an anchor this morning from one of the local news channels. They've actually banded together to one to do one broadcast and oh, wow. to do it five or six hours a day. And it's seen throughout the country. And it really is incredible to see how these local journalists are now, they're fighting their own war in the sense she's, she called disinformation a weapon. And she says that she is now fighting that disinformation and she sees as her calling as her calling even though her family members her husband is fighting on the front lines they're broadcasting from secret locations so it has been inspiring to see the local journalists here how they're working but also to work with these local producers that you mentioned Jacob. We, we could not do what we do without them these guys have left a lot of their homes in the east they're sleeping in a tiny hotel room some of them sharing a room yep. mm -hmm. and and they're still working so hard and us we can leave here whenever we want we're not being forced to stay here right. but they're here most of them don't want to leave uh, and if they're men, they can't leave. So it's a, it's a huge layer of pressure on them uh, that, that we don't experience. One of the things that my uh, viewers are often curious about is how, how you all end up here. Um, what, what, what motivates you to run toward danger? Talking to people who I think lived very similar lives as I did five days ago, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, who have by fate of birth wound up in an entirely different situation. Um, the idea that journalism is the only way, and I think we hear this from our local producers, the only way that people back home know about it. The only way we knew what was happening in Mariupol is because there were two AP journalists inside Mariupol for weeks on end. And we relied, you know, occasionally on additional sourcing in there, but we relied on their accounts. And that is the only reason. So I think it becomes, you know, doubly important, triply important for all of us when we see that in action, when we see examples like that um, continues to motivate. It's the people for me. It's always the people. Um, you know, what a privilege to be able to cut. You, you, you watch us on the news. I, I was probably here amongst the, the last of us. Um, and you sit at home and you watch on the news um, what people are going through. And I just want to know, I want to know what it's like. You know, what are the, what are the facts on the ground, um, as they say in the military or in right. diplomacy? And so, I mean, in the, in the two and a half weeks that I've been here, you get to talk to people from the east that are sleeping in Red Cross tents at the train station. I got to spend time with people who survived the Holocaust only to flee another um, foreign invasion. Uh, people serving hot meals to people all around the country. It's through those uh, stories, and not just the politics or the negotiations or the familiar faces, that I think, for me, it makes it makes us all worth coming to do. Look, I always want to be on the front lines of a big story, if possible. I don't want terrible things to happen, of course, but if there is human suffering, I at least want to see it firsthand. And Jacob, you know, you and I have covered immigration in the U.S. considerably and done such a great job covering it, but I saw those refugees and I couldn't imagine not at least being able to be here and witness it and speak to some of these people, see the strength of the human spirit. But this is different. This is something that was created uh, by, you know, Vladimir Putin, by one man, and it is different than natural disasters. 
You know, I pride myself on being a very objective journalist and telling both sides, but what happens when there is no two sides, or at least one side has the truth behind it? And it is, it is difficult to wrap your mind around it as you're coming in, you know, to a situation like this. A lot of the people that we've spoken to here and we've interviewed, they've said, you know, thank you so much for coming here and getting the story out. And one thing that was very poignant to me, we were interviewing a hacker who was doing everything he was, uh, he, he was doing everything he could to hurt the, you know, the Russian economy and the, and the media there. And he was so grateful that we were interviewing him and telling people what, they, what he was doing because he said he has family in Russia and they don't believe him. They don't believe the stuff he puts out there. He goes, you know, this is my godmother. And, you know, I'm putting out information that what's happening in my own country. And she's saying that's all fake news. You're making all of this up to make Russia look bad. And that's very important to a lot of the people here to get that out. We were in Odessa, which is down on the southwest coast, the most strategic port city, a beautiful historical city. For the last month, they have been told war could come here tomorrow. And so I think for us, it's really important not just to talk to people from Mariupol like we've been doing who can tell their stories, from Kharkiv who can tell their stories, but really to show our audience something else that actually doesn't look like this. Um, Odessa looks entirely different. You hear shelling all day long. You hear air raid sirens all day long. It's not just twice a day. It's not just three times a day. You hear small arms. You hear mines kind of going off in the distance. It, the soundtrack of the city is different, and it looks different. No one is walking around downtown. It is barricaded. It is sandbagged up to the kind of roof that it's entirely, even though war is also not there in the streets, it feels very, very different. I was interviewing this uh, young lady that escaped Mariupol. I mean, the story she was telling was just horrifying, that she'd made a suicide pact with her sister so they wouldn't starve to death because there was no food there. And, you know, just doing the Zoom interview with her, I was really trying to hold back my emotions, which is, you know, tough to do. I, as a, I ran as a that interview on TV and I could yeah. not hold back. I do hold emotions. back. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it very really difficult, hard. you know, you're hearing these first-hand hear accounts. actually saying that stuff yeah. and you know they're not exaggerating to make the point. You had a 15-year-old on your weekend show from Poland, I think it was like the very end of your hour, yeah. and she said, can I give you a hug? Yeah. She's not saying that because she wants to make good television. Yeah. She yeah. wanted a hug. Example. Yeah. It is a remarkable story, and I'm grateful to you all for, uh, for doing this with me and for continuing to do the job. Stay safe. I say it to you every time we're on TV, <laughs> but now that we're here in person, stay safe. You too, man. And I want to thank NBC's Ali Aruzi, Gabe Gutierrez, Molly Hunter, and Jacob Soboroff for joining me for that conversation. We are all richer for it. And thank you to all the journalists, not just from NBC, all the journalists from all over the world and inside Ukraine who are covering this story here and abroad. We've got another hour of Velshi live from Ukraine coming up, another hour to bear witness to the atrocities committed here by Russia. It is difficult, but it is necessary. Another hour starts right now. And good morning to those of you who are just joining us. It is Sunday, April the 3rd. I'm Ali Velshi, live this weekend from Lviv in western Ukraine. Throughout this conflict, Ukrainian officials have regularly taken to Facebook and other social media sites to post lengthy updates about the war. But yesterday, one short and succinct update shared by Ukraine's deputy defense minister spoke volumes. Quote, Irpin, Bucha, Hostomel, and the whole Kyiv region were liberated from the invader. Well, today we're learning more about the extent of the horrors that Vladimir Putin and his military have committed against the Ukrainian people. After 39 days of surprising resilience and defiance against one of the biggest armies in the world, Ukrainians have successfully defended the seat of their country's democracy for at least the moment. 
Ukrainian soldiers rolled back into these areas and the Ukrainian flag was mounted on their tanks as the Russian military retreated from contested towns that had been shelled for much of the past month. But any celebration of that liberation of Kyiv is overshadowed by the discovery of what the Russians have done to those towns. And before I go on, I must warn you, what you are going to see, even the descriptions of what you are going to see, are graphic. They are some of the worst visuals we have seen out of Ukraine so far. But we have made the decision to show them to you and talk about them, because the world cannot close its eyes to what we have woken up to this morning. In Bucha, a suburb of the outskirts of Kyiv, there are signs of a massacre on the streets, decaying civilian corpses lying on the sidewalk and in the middle of the road, amid the rubble and debris from the destroyed properties that used to be people's homes. The dead are in civilian clothing, in puffy winter jackets and jeans. They cannot be confused for military uniforms. Bodies lay haphazardly on the road so that people who have traveled into Bucha in the past few days have literally needed to drive around them. Ukrainians are taking care to avoid the bodies out of fear that the Russians may have rigged them with mines, with bombs. Some of the bodies on the roadside even appear to have their hands tied behind their backs. A mass grave was found in town with people's limbs poking out of the dirt. No easy way of knowing exactly how many people lie in those trenches. Bucha's mayor says at least 300 residents of the town have been killed. Those scenes were just the, the, what we saw from the town that has been in Russian control. Those images are evidence of Russians indiscriminately targeting civilians because they happen to be on the opposite side of the border from Vladimir Putin. Because they are targeting people who are civilians. The targeting of civilians is a war crime. It's the kind of unimaginable, unimaginable depravity that is usually met with people uttering the phrase, never again. But how many times and for how many tragedies will we repeat that expression? We can't keep saying never again over and over and over without doing anything to actually prevent or deter morally depraved megalomaniacs like Vladimir Putin from carrying out massacres like this. There's a hesitation in saying that Kyiv has been liberated today because Russia may just be repositioning and gearing up for a bigger effort. The apparent liberation of Kyiv does not mean the Russian offensive is over. In other parts of Ukraine, Ukraine, nothing much has changed. Russia continues to be a major presence throughout much of the eastern and southern regions of this country. Just hours ago, actually, Russia carried out a missile strike that destroyed an oil refinery in Odessa, which is an important southern port city on the Black Sea. And what about Mariupol? The stories we've already gathered out of that heavily besieged city have been horrific. That's where Russians bombed a maternity hospital and struck a theater where civilians were sheltering, killing about 300 people. What about the other atrocities we don't know about yet? We are past the point of sanctions and strongly worded condemnations and the seizing of oligarchs' mega yachts. It's no longer sufficient as the evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity continue to grow. Vladimir Putin has no regard for life or humanity or even the rules of war. He's proven that time and time again, and he has also pursued the indiscriminate killing of civilians time and time again, twice before in Ukraine and in Chechnya. The global world order and potentially democracy's survival hang in the balance. If this isn't the kind of moment that the United Nations and NATO and the UN and the G20 and the Council of Europe and the G7 were made for, what is the point of these alliances if not to stop this? The world cannot sit by as Vladimir Putin continues this reign of terror. 
NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel has more from Kharkiv, another city fearful of what's to come. Richard. Russian troops have suffered a catastrophic defeat outside of Kiev, pulling back from not just areas around the capital, but the entire province around Kiev. Russia says that it pulled back in order to give peace talks a chance and more momentum, but they pulled back under fire. They were forced back. Uh, they had been taking heavy losses from Ukrainian troops, uh, suffering many, many casualties. And now that Russian forces have left the areas and have left civilian towns and cities, Ukrainian troops have been able to go in and see the atrocities that Russian forces were carrying out. There have been bodies laying on the ground. Uh, many of them appear to have been killed execution style at close range, some with their hands tied behind their backs. Uh, there's uh, Some bodies were dumped into quickly dug mass graves. Also reports, widespread reports of looting, even rape. And this is consistent with what we've also been hearing in other parts of Ukraine, directly from victims of, of systematic looting uh, and also cases of rape and, and execution at close range. The, this now uh, opens up potentially the Russians to consolidate their forces here in the east. And that is what Russia publicly has said it is going to do. It's going to fortify positions closer to the Russian border. But the Ukrainian military are anticipating that. They are preparing that uh, already for the last several days. Uh, from this city, we've been hearing nonstop uh, artillery fire going toward Russian positions. Reinforcements are also heading here. And the Ukrainian military want to take advantage of this opportunity while the Russians are readjusting their position under fire after, ha after, having, suffer after having suffered losses. They want to make sure that they suffer similar losses in this part of the country as well. NBC's Richard Engel reporting from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, we're also following what's happening in the southern Ukrainian port city of Odessa. This morning, multiple explosions and black plumes of smoke filling the city's skies. For more on this, I'm joined with NBC's Gabe Gutierrez, who's following that very closely from here in Lviv. Gabe, what do we know about what happened in Odessa? Oh, hey there, Ali. Well, the Russian Ministry of Defense says that it destroyed an oil refinery as well as three separate fuel depots. And as you described, early this morning in that southern historic port city of Odessa, huge plumes of smoke can be seen, multiple explosions heard by the residents there. Now, Ali, this appears to be a targeted precision strike, similar to what we saw about a week ago uh, here in Lviv. On uh, Saturday of last uh, weekend, there was a fuel depot targeted here. Uh, several people injured in this strike. Uh, but again, this appears to be a targeted uh, strike in that southern port city of Odessa. No word on any injuries just yet. The Ukrainians say that civilian infrastructure, critical infrastructure, was targeted. But again, the Russian Ministry of Defense saying at this point that it destroyed an oil refinery and three separate fuel depots. No word on any injuries. But this was a city that had been preparing for strikes for the past several weeks. This all comes, as you just heard Richard report there, that uh, fighting is continuing in the east and in the south. The question is, will the Russian forces mount any sort of ground offensive into Odessa? At this point, though, it appears that it was just those missile strikes this morning. Local authorities, though, are watching all of this very closely, Ali.
And Gabe, you're watching it too. Please stay close uh, and just let us know as you have updates. We'll bring you right back on NBC's Gabe Gutierrez here in Lviv, Ukraine with me. Joining me in person is Ina Sovson, a member of the Ukrainian parliament. She's the deputy chair of Ukraine's Holos political party, which is an opposition party in parliament. We have, we have spent so many yes, days talking indeed. over the last month. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to finally meet you. I'm sorry. Uh, I forget you're from Ukraine. I don't have a wind no, problem here, no, but I it's, have the hair it's a windy, yes, it's a windy day. Um, it is such tragedy we are discussing this morning. You heard Richard Engel talking not just about the bodies around Kiev that we have uh, that have been discovered overnight, but about rape. Uh, you have been seeing a lot of reports from people about seeing their parents, their parents, dead bodies, seeing the, the, the naked bodies of women on the street. These are war crimes. Indeed they are. And it seems like it cannot get any worse, but with every single piece of news that I'm reading from Irpin, from Bucha, from the road to, to the west, it's only getting worse. Like half an hour ago, I read the statement by the mayor of Irpin, who said that the Russians just opened fire on girls and women, and when they fell down, they started driving on tanks over their dead bodies. Those are just sick people. I'm sorry to say that they're just sick. They need to be prosecuted. Uh, and, and justice needs to be done to the victims one way or another. Because what is what has happened there is just, I don't think we imagined that, uh, that that was actually taking place. I mean, we knew it was bad. It was so much worse than we expected that to see. And uh, it's just so painful. Yeah. Yesterday, there was... Uh the mayor of Bucha was talking two days ago, talking about the fact that we've we've got the city back. And I don't think we understood the full extent yeah. of it. They started then looking in the streets and realizing that there were civilian bodies lying in the streets, hundreds of them. So many. And you can see that many of them have their hands tied behind their their backs. So that means they just captured them and they uh, shot into their heads, uh, just like just like Nazis did. That is precisely what they're doing. Is is this is a Nazi state? They they they've been shot in a civilians. Uh, uh, now, when it's all over, I can tell you something I didn't reveal before. Uh, you remember Makariv? Yes. Is it, my parents are from Makariv area. So, so they were uh, like, they were not there at the time that that was taking place, but they know some of the people from the villages where the Russians have actually been uh, in there. And they know that the leaders of that one of the villages has been killed with her husband and her son. And one of the pictures we have seen was from the leaders of one of the villages, which is like one village away from my parents' place. Uh. It just, it just unimaginable that this is actually taking place somewhere where I used to drive like every second week going to my parents' place. Uh, it's unimaginable that this has actually been taking place. And I think after what we have seen, the world cannot keep quiet. We cannot pretend this didn't happen. We cannot pretend that more sanctions will do the job. What we have to do is to ask for Russia to be kicked out of the UN totally. It has no way to, to you know, to stay in the Security Council after this has happened. Uh, it needs to be like full embargo on NATO, gas, anything. Like we cannot continue funding this. No one can keep on sending money to Russia. And, and yeah, weapons to protect ourselves because we can imagine that the same things can be happening in other occupied areas on the south, on the east. This is the same uh, that they will be doing there as well. And we just probably just don't know the whole extent to what is happening there right now. We spoke to the Russian foreign minister, former Russian foreign yeah. minister, Andrei Kozirev this morning. I spoke to the former president of Estonia, Tumas Ilves, this morning, and they both said the same thing. They said that the West is rightfully fearful of the nuclear threat that, that Vladimir Putin keeps talking about his nuclear weaponry. But we have never seen a situation in which a nuclear arsenal uh, 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 has been used as a, uh, a defense or a, a threat 
for conquest. How should we think about this? How should my viewers think about this? Because they worry that if NATO gets more involved, if the U.S. gets more involved, Vladimir Putin will push a button and create World War III. Well, then the, the viewers should realize that uh, they, the people are being killed right now, real people. You look at the people at the borders line there, and uh, like I was struck with, sorry, again, one of the images, uh, the person had uh, the, the sneakers just the same as I did. And I was thinking, like, this is the same person as myself, and we need to remember that those are real people, just like ourselves, like me and you and everyone else watching this. And they have suffered through terrible rape, uh, you know, torture, everything. We need to react to that. Otherwise, we as humanity do not, you know, what is it all worth? We need to be protecting each other. And yes, nuclear is is uh, terrifying. I believe like everyone being here in Ukraine is so scared of that. But how many more people need to be killed before we actually say, okay, that is enough? You know, 300 people killed in one bomb blast in Mariupol. 300 people. Like, what is worse than that? Why is 300 people potentially killed in a chemical attack are worse? And then the West say that then we will react but 300 people killed in Mariupol in one single blast and thousands more, in, you know, just during the time of siege. Like, the West needs to react. The whole world needs to react. Because it just, uh, this is happening. This is the tragedy that is taking place. And just keeping quiet about that is uh, not going to do the job. Otherwise, he'll keep on killing. Keep on killing until he gets whatever he wants. You have, your family is from the East. Your son is in the West because yeah. you're trying to keep him Literally safe. Literally in the room nearby. Martin is here? Yeah, he's here. Because you insist that he does his yeah. homework. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and you are in Kiev most of the time. Your boyfriend is in... Uh, in somewhere. Somewhere. He's oh. somewhere. How are you? Well, you and I talk sometimes nightly. It's four in the morning. You, you don't, do you sleep? Do you, how do you manage this? You know, I feel constantly tired. Like, I feel like I can fall asleep right away. The moment I go to bed, I cannot fall asleep for two, three hours. I literally get to sleep like three hours a night and I can't. I wake up and then I cannot uh, go back to sleep anymore because I keep on reading news. Or, frankly, I've been thinking about uh, those images that we have seen. For the last two days, I'm go going to bed and I'm thinking about those women that we saw the naked bodies of. Uh, they were naked and then they were shot and then they were burnt. I can imagine what has happening, has been happening to them before they were actually dead. And I think that that is just terrifying. And I keep on thinking about that in my head. And I cannot get those read images out of my head. Yeah, I'm, we're all terrified. And I think people have been asking me for the 24 hours, uh, are you happy that uh, Kyiv region is free of Russians right now? And I realized that I don't feel happy. It feels empty. It feels like yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a relief at all. Just because of the images we have seen, we we didn't, you know, pay even attention to the fact that they have finally been gone. We, it, it was quiet in Kiev for the last two days. That is true. I just got, got back here to the west uh, yesterday night. It was quiet, but we didn't feel relief just because we were all like your brain freezes uh, when you see those images and you. You know, you can't accept that, but you also have to. And you have to react and you have to talk to the world. That The world needs to react to what is happening. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just mind-numbing. That's it. Thank you for the time that you take uh, to spend with us. Thank you for uh, getting this message out. And thank you for all that you are doing. Thank it's, you, thank it's you so uh, much. It's an honor to finally meet you in, in, in person. person. We yeah. will speak many times, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And maybe we will speak in good times. So, so much hope so. Thank you. Ina Savson is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. At times, this uh, program is difficult to watch. It's a Sunday morning, but it's our responsibility as Americans and as people to bear witness to these atrocities. We must look 
Right after the break, I'll be joined by the retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's already called for the U.S. to do more, including assisting Ukraine in imposing a no-fly zone of its own. And later, the retired Major John Spencer, specializing in urban warfare, uh, went viral a few weeks ago for tweeting detailed instructions on how to stave off a Russian city takeover. Now he, too, is calling for U.S. intervention. You're watching a special edition of Velshi, live from Lviv. we got some breaking news this morning. Ukraine's Minister for Foreign Affairs is officially calling on the International Criminal Court and other international organizations to visit Bucha, Ukraine and other cities and towns in the Kyiv region as soon as possible to gather evidence of Russians committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. All morning, we've been showing you horrifying images of dead civilians in the streets of Bucha, images that the ICC will look to as evidence. Joining me now is the retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the former director of European Affairs for the National Security Council. Uh, Colonel, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, the world has caught up to you. I remember, I don't know, it was a month or a month and a half ago where you were saying that things that seemed inconceivable two weeks ago will seem uh, possible today and things, things that seem inconceivable two weeks from now uh, will seem possible then. We are now at this point where the world needs more to be done than what has been done in the face of these atrocities that we are now witnessing together. Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, I, I applaud your reporting. It's a terrific coverage of something that's critically important. It frankly puts in stark contrast what this war is about. It's a it's a war against evil. It's against tyranny and the barbarism that comes with that uh, kind of a government, that kind of system. Uh, these were not surprising events to me. Uh, I was hoping I was going to be wrong, but I understood the Russian way of war and that the Russians have engaged in this kind of barbarism repeatedly both under the Putin administration, the Putin regime in Chechnya and Syria, but also historically, because that country has been subject to tyranny, dictatorship, um, authoritarianism for the vast part of the 20th century. And that's the difference. Uh, we, we don't understand this kind of uh, mentality. But the brutality that you see here uh, is a rot that affects the entire society. It's not just the leadership that's corrupt. It also affects the military and the way the military wages war. And the consequences are uh, this no restraint type of warfare that has uh, the likelihood of consuming large parts of Ukraine, if not the world, if it's not stopped. That's why it's, it, it's a travesty that the U.S. is not doing more. I mean, I, I hear the rhetoric about the fact that the U.S. is providing uh, another $300 million. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of what's needed. I called for a lend-lease uh, depots of equipment so that Ukraine could successfully wage this war. We're entering a particularly dangerous phase where Russia could actually achieve some of its objectives in the east. because it's no longer it has a much better battle plan. It's consolidating its resources. And that's not the begin. That's not the end. That's the beginning. If Russia is successful in the east, it doesn't stop there. That's just not the nature of the regime. They will go back to Kharkiv. They will go back to Kiev. And we'll see more of this. That's why the U.S. needs to think about a wartime footing. We're in a Cold War and finding ways to say yes to the kinds of requests, reasonable requests that Ukraine has for equipment, for weapons to win this war, because they're fighting for all of us. They're fighting to defeat Putin's regime, Putin's tyranny, and we're not doing enough. 
Colonel, you were the director of European affairs at the National Security Council. So you are acutely aware of the fact that Russia as an adversary is one of the most dangerous adversaries in the world to have because they are armed with a nuclear arsenal strong enough to destroy the world several times over. Uh, but but uh, Alexander Kozarev and, and Tumas Ilvas were both saying this morning that can't be an excuse for conquest. And it can't be the reason that we don't fight back against conquest or against war crimes uh, or, or crimes against humanity. So how do you square those two things? Well, first of all, it's uh, the, the best way to describe it is nuclear blackmail. The idea that they could warn us off from doing what we think is in our best interest, supporting Ukraine, helping win this war by uh, nuclear saber rattling. In fact, there is a simple concept that uh, proves that rings all of these threats hollow. And that is nuclear uh, mutually assured destruction, because we have nuclear uh, as potent, if not a more potent nuclear arsenal. It is mutually assured destruction if what Russia were to consider or to employ nuclear weapons against us. So we it is not something we need to fear. They need, have uh, greater fears of uh, conventional warfare against us based on how poorly they performed in Ukraine. Uh, on that basis, they're going to not even move up the escalatory ladder. They're not looking to. They're doing everything they can to avoid a fight. They're effectively trying to blackmail us and warn us off, but they have no interest in this. I've seen this firsthand, you know, sitting on phone calls or meeting with the Russians, their apprehension about uh, tangling with with the U.S., tangling with NATO. And we need to understand that the nuclear threshold is basically impossibly high. And we've heard uh, Russia repeat the refrain that existential threat, that's the employment of nuclear weapons. If the Russia is on the brink of collapse, that's when they will use nuclear weapons. That is not the threshold that we're at right now. We're far from it. And the Russians will not wage nuclear war against us because they will be destroyed. Colonel, uh, thank you for your time. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is the former director of European Affairs at the National Security Council. We always appreciate your analysis. Right after the break, I'm going to be joined by the acting United States ambassador to Ukraine to discuss what America can do for the Ukrainian people. This is a special edition of Velshi, live from Lviv. I'm coming to you live from Lviv, Ukraine, as we continue to see evidence pointing to apparent Russian war crimes in the areas surrounding Kiev. My next guest has become painful, painfully familiar with the intensifying danger in Ukraine, having been evacuated from her workplace at the U.S. embassy in Kiev to Lviv and then moved once again to Poland. Joining me now is Christina Kavin, the charge d'affaires at the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. She's also a former director at the National Security Council, specifically for the European Union, Ukraine and Belarus uh, affairs. Ambassador, thank you for uh, being with us tonight. Uh, this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, what is your reaction to what you have seen this morning? The uh, the, the areas around Kiev that have been liberated or from which Russian uh, troops have withdrawn and then the, the carnage, the, the dead bodies, the apparent war crimes that we are witnessing. Well, what we've seen in these horrible photos uh, just reaffirms what President Biden stated uh, recently, which is that President Putin is a butcher. He is uh, going about uh, this horrible war, unprovoked war, in an uncivilized way. 
And unfortunately, although he has pulled out of some towns surrounding Kyiv, this sort of butchery continues in Mariupol, in Kharkiv, and now we're seeing that he's firing missiles at Odessa. So unfortunately, uh, this sort of barbarism continues. What do we do about it? Because uh, we, there are these legitimate fears about what escalation looks like. But when you look at the images we are seeing this morning to the human mind, that feels a great deal like escalation. Uh, the, the president has been he's gone around the world. He's gone to uh, Brussels. He was in Poland last week. He seems to be trying to get everybody to get onto the same page with respect to aid to Ukraine, with respect to uh, sanctions against Ukraine. But we are not all united in this in the West. Uh, does this change? things? Does the idea that there are atrocities and war crimes and civilian deaths, uh, does it change the way the world is going to react to what's happening? Well, I would say that uh, since this unprovoked war in Ukraine, actually uh, NATO and our allies and partners have been incredibly united. Uh, I mean, there might be a difference here or there, but generally we have been united in our condemnation of Russia and in our support of Ukraine. I can tell you the United States uh, has spent over $2 billion supporting specifically Ukrainian military. We've been giving them weapons, uh, anti-tank, anti-air, ammunition. More recently, we've been giving them uh, drones and also tanks. And we are working with our allies and partners to give them uh, defensive equipment as well. Some of our allies and partners, in fact, have given equipment to Ukraine uh, as the first time they've ever given this sort of thing to another country because they recognize just how uh, brutal and uh, unprovoked this war has been. The the president, though, President Zelensky has asked President Biden, I think they had an hour long conversation the other day. Uh, he, they do need more than aid. They they want U.S. and NATO intervention. And I guess it's hard to understand where that line is, because they've obviously called for the airplanes from uh, NATO and an, a, a no fly zone. Uh, Russia continues to be a member of the U.N. Security Council, continues to be a member of the uh, United Nations, continues to be a member of the G20 uh, at, at What's left? What headroom do we have left now that can, can feel like the U.S. is leading an escalation of the resistance against Russia in Ukraine? Well, I would say that from the beginning, we have strongly believed that uh, we should go at Russia in two ways. First is uh, crippling sanctions to their economy. Second is providing Ukraine the military uh, and other assistance, including humanitarian assistance, that it needs uh, to both fend off Russia and also take care of uh, the people that have been internally displaced. So since the beginning of uh, this war, we have ramped up all of those things, and we will not stop. We will continue to provide, uh, first of all, equipment, and uh, including weapons to Ukraine. Second of all, we'll also continue to uh, ramp up our sanctions to make sure that President Putin's ability to finance this horrible war is further constricted. And all of these things have continued every day, week on week, since the beginning of hostilities. Uh, Christina Kveen, uh, thank you for joining us. Christina Kveen is the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. We appreciate your time this morning. The necessity and the power of journalism has never been more evident than in this moment of war. Just take a look at the remarkable reporting on the ground here by local Ukrainian journalists. 
Coming up next, I'm going to be joined by one of them who's been detailing the conflict and the human rights atrocities happening inside Ukraine. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. All morning, we've been reporting on what many human rights organizations are calling credible evidence of war crimes committed by the Russian military in Ukraine. The video that we are showing or that we've been showing from the area surrounding Kiev speak for itself. The next image we're about to show you is difficult to see. It's even more difficult to comprehend. President Zelensky's advisor tweeted this image. He says it shows the body of three civilians with their arms tied behind their backs after being shot dead by Russian forces. The tweet says these people, quote, pose no threat. My next guest is a well-respected journalist from Ukraine who covers conflict and human rights. She tweeted in response that she's not shocked by the image and expects to see many more like it. Natalia Gamenyuk uh, joins me now from Kiev. She's the CEO and the founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab. Uh, Natasha, thank you for being with us again. Natalia, thank you for being uh, with us again. I- I'm sorry to have to talk to you about these things, but the the images that we have seen overnight from things that we thought would be good news, we saw the liberation of these towns from Russian forces around Kiev have turned from a celebration of liberation into possibly one of the worst sets of images that we have seen in recent memory? So um, when I said I'm not really shocked, we've been in touch a bit uh, with the people in the occupied towns. And unfortunately, it's not just these areas in Kiev. Of course, it's horrendous and we are all appalled because there is no logic in that. There is some, some weird logic in bombing and shelling the towns to overtake them. There is no any military human logic in rape, which had been documented by, for instance, Human Rights Watch, or or also, you know, murders of the elderly driving the bicycle, but also some people. What is worse is that we see the similar, uh, maybe not of that scale, but the similar cases of uh, civilian cases and the rape in the villages near Kharkiv or in Trostanets or in any other area where uh, some of the towns had been occupied by the Russian regular troops. Um, So it's still something to comprehend and it is also something to stress that it's exactly what Ukrainians were afraid of why Ukrainian army is defending those towns and why they are not, uh, let's say, agreeing to withdraw or leave those towns, because that's what's happening in, in, uh, in them. What is your sense of of uh, what it is? We've been discussing this all morning. What it is that the world needs to do in response to these images? There are lots of times in history where we say we didn't really know what was happening or we didn't really have clarity on what was happening. We know we have clarity. People like you bear witness to this every day. And now we have images. There's just no way for anyone in the world to say that 
rape, uh, torture, the tying of civilians' hands behind their backs and shooting them in the head, the driving over the bodies of, of people you know to be civilians, the bombing of their homes is anything that we can accept uh, as a civilized society. What now? So first, one part is, of course, the, you know, like the empathy and grievance. It's it's something important. But of course, it's not something which can um, avoid the further atrocities. First of all, it's very important to understand who are responsible for these crimes. And in particular to say that it's not just the uh, Putin. It's also the, the Putin propagandists, which for a while managed to dehumanize Ukrainians to make it possible. Uh, then it's also to uh, under- identifying the chain of the commands, because there were clear Russian military who did these atrocities. But the most important at this stage, there are still towns to occupy. I'm just coming back from the Donbass, from the eastern part of Ukraine, where, uh, which has been confirmed to me by governors, by everybody, that there would be fierce battles for other towns and attempts to occupy other towns. So the other critical things is not to let these things happen in other towns around the country, which couldn't be done with any other means but then the support to the Ukrainian army that they would have some, uh, you know, weaponry uh, enough to push this, uh, you know, like not to let this occupation uh, taking place. Probably something to add also to the Western audience. The the pictures you see, these are the suburbs from Kiev and actually quite a wealthy suburbs where people who are pretty well off to have a house, not a flats to live. A lot of those people thought that there would be the military fight for the capital. So they really went there because they thought they can stay, you know, somewhere in their private houses a bit out of the capital. So we see that these are, you know, that's really, um, I, I can say that some people are more important or not. But really, it's, it, it was really a very peaceful, well-off neighborhood. Uh, just to understand how relatable it should be to any person sitting in his or her home. And we also Nazaya, understand that it might uh, thank you. Else. Thank you. Sorry, I, I, we lost our connection for a second. Natalia, thank you for uh, joining us this morning. Natalia Gomenyuk, as a Ukrainian journalist and the Public Interest Journalism Lab CEO and co-founder, we appreciate your time again. Well, today, Hungarians are casting their votes in a high-stakes election. If pro-Putin Prime Minister Viktor Orban wins re-election, it could have rippling effects in this war in Ukraine. We'll go live to Budapest after this. As the sun came up on Ukraine today, images of the devastation left in the wake of Russians retreating from Kyiv were on full display. I'm about to show some of them to you. They are difficult to see, but necessary for the world to bear witness. Mass graves, dead bodies dressed in civilian clothing, littering the streets and sidewalks in Bucha. These images are objectively horrifying, and at the very least, they appear to be hard evidence of war crimes. So, Vladimir Putin does not have many friends in the region. Among Ukraine's neighbors who are watching this reign of terror unfold, one steadfast Russian ally stands out the far right Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. But he's up for re election. Today, in his bid to continue as NATO's longest-serving leader, 
His support for Putin as the war unfolds across the border in Ukraine has been a key issue in the campaign against him. And last night, on the eve of Election Day in Hungary, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky issued a blistering rebuke of Orban's failure to help his Ukrainian neighbors or even to admit what's happening to them. Here's the portion of what Zelensky said that grabbed me, quote, I want to turn to another person who does not seem to fully understand what is happening, not only in Ukraine, but throughout Europe. To the prime minister of Hungary, he is virtually the only one in Europe to openly support Mr. Putin. We did not ask for anything special from official Budapest. We didn't even get what everyone else is doing, doing for the sake of peace. We did not receive the vital transit of defense aid. We did not see moral leadership. We saw no effort to stop the war. Why so? The whole of Europe wants peace. The whole of Europe does not want the battlefield to be moved from Mariupol to Budapest or from Kharkiv to Krakow or from Chernihiv to Vilnius. The whole of Europe is trying to stop the war to restore peace. Then why is official Budapest opposed to the whole of Europe, to all civilized countries? For what? The main thing for us is the opinion of the people. The Ukrainian people support the Hungarian people. The Hungarian people support the Ukrainian people. We value peace equally. We value freedom equally. It will always be so. We will always live in good neighborliness. And I'm convinced that our minorities should be the bridges that unite us even more. Politicians come and go and truth remains. That's what I'm talking about, the truth. And I always say what I think. When I'm speaking of Hungary, I mean Hungary, and I don't need to mask my thoughts. If we need to speak to Germany, we are speaking of Germany. If I need to speak of another country, I'm speaking of another country. If it is a war, then I call it a war, not a special operation. If this is a threat to the whole of Europe, then I call it a threat to the whole of Europe. This is called the honesty that Mr. Orban lacks. He may have lost it somewhere in his contacts with Moscow, end quote. That was Vladimir Zelensky. Joining me now live from Hungary's capital of Budapest is NBC's Raf Sanchez. Raf, the polls close there in about three hours. If Viktor Orban gets reelected, Vladimir Putin has cemented another ally. What's your sense of how this election is playing out and what kind of chance uh, does Orban's challenger, his main challenger, have in this election? Yeah, Ali, we're at a polling station in downtown Budapest. This is a pretty liberal neighborhood, and voters here are overwhelmingly against Viktor Orban. We spoke to a young woman earlier. She's a teacher, and she actually got pretty emotional talking about this election, saying this is the last best chance for her country to try to preserve democracy. But there is another big question on the minds of voters here, and that is whether these votes tonight are going to be fairly counted or whether this is a preordained for fourth victory for Mr. Orban. We met earlier with Peter Marquise. He's the head of the Hungarian opposition. He's the man who's hoping that in a couple of hours' time, he will be named as the next prime minister of Hungary. And we put that question to him. Does he have a real chance of winning this election? Take a listen to what he had to say. You describe Prime Minister Orban as an authoritarian. He controls the state institutions. He has control over a lot of the media in this country. Is this a fair election? Do you stand a real chance here? Well, they don't, of course. There is still a a fair chance, a a clear chance that we can win this election, but it is not a fair and free election, not at all. Just imagine, aside from all the electoral fraud, aside from the new constitution and the new electoral road, 
uh, electoral law that was only approved by one single party. Constitution approved by one single party, electoral law approved by one single party, and also gerrymandering. They reshaped all the electoral districts. So everything here is serving Orban's interest that he can always uh, stay in power. Now, Orban's big argument is he's the man who will keep Hungary out of the war in Ukraine. He claims the opposition are so rabidly pro-NATO, rabidly pro-Western, that they will drag this country into war. That is an argument the opposition very firmly rejects. But it's an argument that seems to be working in some quarters in this country. We actually met a young man who's voted consistently against Viktor Orban. But he said in this election, he's going to vote for him because he is really afraid that Hungary will end up dragged into the war in Ukraine. Ali, there were election observers from the OSCE here earlier. They have raised concerns, especially about Viktor Orban's iron grip over the media in this country. It's very, very difficult for opposition candidates to get any airtime at all on state media. I will tell you, turnout is looking slightly lower so far today compared to the same time in the 2018 election. It's hard to know exactly what that means, but it could be a problem for the opposition who are really hoping for a wave of anti-Orban enthusiasm and hoping that their voters keep the faith and turn up at the polls. Ali? Raf, really important reporting that you're doing from Budapest. Thank you for that. NBC's Raf Sanchez in Budapest, Hungary. Coming up next, I'll speak to retired Major John Spencer, who spent more than 25 years in the U.S. Army. He tweeted this last night, quote, Ukraine needs the U.S., not just weapons. This is a test of our national values, what we stand for, what I served for, what my family serves for, to protect the innocent, to stop evil in war. It is time. Joining me now is a retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer. He's the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He is no stranger to war, serving more than 25 years in the Army, including two combat tours in Iraq. He's also the author of the book Connected Soldiers. Uh, Major, thank you for being with us today. I, I want to get your take on uh, what's been going on. You and I have been talking since actually before this war started, and you were talking about ways that Ukrainians can protect themselves particularly in uh, urban warfare. But now overnight, we have seen what has happened in these suburbs of uh, Kiev. The Russians have left and what they have left behind is remarkable evidence of war crimes and atrocities. How does this change your thinking, if at all? It has to change everybody's thinking, Ali. This isn't I'm, I study urban warfare. I've been in urban war. This isn't bombing of civilians that can be argued away as military targets. It takes an intimate special kind of evil to wrap the hands of a civilian and shoot them in the back of the head. This is clear. War crimes is not the right word for me. It's evil. And if we don't stand up, we, like I'm speaking for myself as a U.S. citizen, if we don't stand up, why are, why are we a superpower? This isn't political. I'm pretty heated about this. You know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are. And and so I guess the issue is, as somebody who has served, because I have never done that. So me saying that the West needs to do more or NATO needs to do more and we have to look at the fact that civilians are being killed in their atrocities sometimes rings hollow. But you saying it is different because what I say involves actual danger to people, it involves danger to NATO soldiers and pilots and uh, and American Marines and, and, and naval officers. So explain that to me. How do you get involved more? 
and not get us into World War III and not get us into uh, a nuclear uh, war with Russia? Hey, look, I know what this means. I know what I'm saying. I served for 25 years. I served to protect the innocent. We are the leaders of the free world. So, yes, and my wife still serves. I don't speak for her, but I'm ready to commit at this moment, unlike I was before this day, to put people in direct contact with Russia, to stop Russia. Call it peacekeeping. Call it what you will. We have to do more than provide weapons. And by we, I mean the United States. Yes, we're going to do it as a coalition with lots of other people, but we are the example. So put boots on the ground, send weapons directly at Russia. This is a massacre. This is a special kind of evil. Uh, Major, what do you what do you do? What do you say to those people? Because you have them. They're around you. They're your former colleagues. They're your neighbors. There are people who say we can't get into this kind of a war with Russia because specifically since day one, since you and I first talked about this, Vladimir Putin keeps making references to his nuclear arsenal. We've heard from people who say that is mutually assured destruction that will destroy Russia. He won't do that because there is no existential threat to Russia right now. If NATO and American troops get involved to defend Ukraine. Ukraine, it doesn't actually threaten Russia in any way. But Americans rightfully believe that it might and he might do uh, he might he might use his nukes. Hey, I, I understand what that means. Look, I teach I taught strategy at West Point. I understand the lines. I don't think Russia has the ability to do that. It is destruction. It would remove Russia. Like I'm not I'm not a warmonger. I, I, I serve to protect the innocent. So I do think me as a U.S. citizen should ask our Congress to authorize our president to do more. And it is a huge risk. I understand that. But today is different. Uh, today is different. And the innocents uh, are in the crosshairs here. I will ask you, because you've been talking about urban warfare since the beginning. It is remarkable what the Ukrainians have done, both the Ukrainian forces and uh, the Ukrainian citizens in terms of urban warfare, in terms of fighting back the Russians. Despite all the atrocities we've seen today, they did push the Russians out of those suburbs of Kiev. Yeah, Absolutely. The Ukrainian is not the David. They they fought for us. They fought for Europe and they paid a huge price. And I think we've only discovered some of the atrocities. There's still so much un places that we just haven't gotten into that Russia has deliberately cleansed, massacred uh, civilians. But the Ukrainians won up to this point. The war is not over, but they clearly using the, the urban terrain masterfully defeated Russian forces. Major John Spencer retired. Uh, he's the chair of the Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He's the author of Connected Soldiers, uh, and he's got some important things to say. We thank you for saying them here this morning. Before we go, I want to call your attention to a relatively new program within the NBC News family. It's called NBCU Academy. It's a journalism training and development program that's designed to prepare college students for a career in news and media and to help people who are already in the field to gain new skill skills. It's got free online content, including a new behind-the-scenes look at how my crew and I have been able to capture the story of the Ukrainian refugee crisis, how it specifically gripped the nation of Hungary, and what it took to get it all on air. The video is called Behind the Story, Refugees Fleeing Ukraine. But if you go to NBCUacademy.com, you'll see videos from a lot of my colleagues. Uh, journalism is a noble calling for those of you who are considering it. 
We hope you do, and we hope you join our ranks. That does it for me. Thank you for watching Velshi. Catch me back here next weekend from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern and all through the coming week as I host 9 p.m. Eastern, The Rachel Maddow Show. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.